0: Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. In the United States of America, there are many ways that we can say hello to somebody. We can say hello, hi, hey, hey there. Howdy, especially if you're from Texas A&M University, you're gonna choose that last one. Yeah, I got a little whoop out there. We can say, yo, long time no see. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. There are a lot of different ways we can say hello. We can say hello phrased as a question, but it's actually a greeting. How are you? How's it going? What's happening? What's new? What's up? Or you can put it this way, what's up? And if we're from the 50th state, we can say hello by saying the word aloha. Exactly. There are many ways to say hello. But are there many ways to God? Some would say yes. And some would say no. No. And because of that disagreement, it can lead to conversation and controversy and conflict in our culture. I want you to to view a short video clip of an American icon by the name of Oprah. And we have here Oprah interacting with her audience. And as this clip begins, Oprah is going to talk about, refer to a book that she has been reading and what that book says. So check the clip. One of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a human being. And and many ways, no, but many paths to what you call God. And her path might be something else. And when she gets there, she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I think- There couldn't possibly be just one way. Interesting phrase that she says there. There couldn't possibly be just one way. And no doubt, you have heard that or maybe even thought that yourself. There couldn't possibly be just one way. I want to read you a, a quote from Rabbi Botak. And Rabbi Botiak, if you don't know him, he is considered to be America's rabbi. He's the guy when the news agencies want to interview someone from his religious persuasion, they will look up Rabbi Boteach. And this is what Rabbi Botiak said. I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different from spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we're closer to God than you. And that's what leads to hatred. We've been involved this whole fall in a series of messages we have entitled FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. And today we come to another question, and this is the question Is Christ the only way? Is Christ the only way? And if you have your Bible open to John chapter 14, I want us to look at a statement that Jesus made in verse six. Jesus says this I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. He basically says, I am the only way. Now, why does that rankle so many people? Why does that get people irritated? Why do they have a negative reaction to that? Is Christ the only way? Now, here's what I believe. I believe that much of the conflict with that concept that Christ is the only way flows from three common notions. In other words, there are three common notions that tend to feed a negative reaction to the idea that Christ is the only way. And what we're going to do in our few moments together today is is basically two things, Number one, we're going to examine these three common notions. And then we're going to zoom in on Jesus' bold assertion that he is the only way. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these three common notions that tend to feed a negative reaction to that statement. And then we want to zoom in on his bold assertion. So let's begin by looking at these three common notions, these things that feed in a negative reaction to Christ being the only way. And the first common notion that exists is that sincere belief determines truth. And you may identify that. That's actually what we tackled in frequently asked question number three. We tackled the question, why does it matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. And if you weren't here when we addressed that question, I would encourage you to go to our website at wildwoodchurch.org and listen to that as we answer that question. But if if you weren't here, here's basically what we concluded. That sincerity does not create reality. That sincerity does not create truth. Truth is not determined by beliefs and opinions. Truth is built on facts. Do you know that for generations, for centuries, the vast majority of people believed that the earth was flat? They believed that. And it may have felt true to them, but the earth was always round. And no amount of belief could ever make it flat. Sincerity does not create reality, doesn't create truth. Truth is not determined by beliefs and opinions. Truth is built on facts. And so what happens is there's this notion that's out there that sincere belief determines truth. And that causes people to stumble over the idea that Christ could be the only way because you know what they say? I believe something different. But just because we believe something different that maybe there are many ways does not make it true. And so we're saying that there are three common notions out there that tend to feed a negative reaction to Christ being the only way. The first one is that sincere belief determines truth. The second one is this. All religions are basically the same. That is a very common notion that is alive out there. All religions are basically the same. You may have heard this idea. There are many paths, but they all lead to the same mountain. That seems to be the notion that Rabbi Boteak is embracing. All religions are basically the same. There are many paths that lead to the same mountain. Now, here's what's interesting about religions. There is a common ground that religions have. Uh, Religions all have common ground in their general moral principles. It doesn't make any difference which religious system you might pick. They would all basically say that it's wrong to steal from somebody. If I were looking at you and, and you were using your smartphone right now, and maybe looking something up on a Bible app in there, and I just decided, you know what? I want your cell phone, and I came down there and took it away from you. All religious systems would agree that's the wrong thing to do. It's wrong to steal. It's it's wrong to murder. If I decided you stole my smartphone, so now I'm going to murder you, all religious systems would agree that is wrong. There's a common ground around general moral principles. They would all agree that it's important for people to be good. It's important for people to be kind. It's important for people to be generous. So there's some common ground around general moral principles, but the reality is, if you go and study religions, you'll find out the reality is that they're very, very different. They have very different views on how a person gains entrance to heaven or how a person gains entrance to eternal bliss. It doesn't make any difference which one that you pick. Each system says to its followers, you need to believe these certain teachings and doctrines. Each system says to its followers, you need to do these certain duties. Each one of them has instructions They would say, you need to pray a certain way. You need to perform certain deeds, specific deeds. Or maybe you need to persist through a cycle of reincarnations, as Hinduism would teach. There's some common ground around general moral principles, but they're very different. Some would say, you get your spiritual cues from Brahman. Some would say you get your spiritual cues from Buddha. Some would say you get your spiritual cues from Confucius. Some would say, no, no, you get your spiritual cues from Muhammad. Some would say, no, you get your spiritual cues from Jesus or from some other source of spiritual thought. But they're different. And the standards of each religious system vary. What are the standards supposed to be in religious thought? Are they the five precepts of Buddhism Are they the the six ways of Confucius? Are the standards the Veda and the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism? What are the standards? Are they the Quran and the five pillars of Islam? Are the standards the gospel and and biblical Christianity? See, all of these standards vary. And what is interesting is that when you look at, at all these religious systems, they all claim some level of exclusivity. You know that historically, Buddhism arose due to a rejection of fundamental Hinduism? That basically they said fundamental Hinduism is wrong. We will come up with a different system, and out of that grew Buddhism. You see, every one of them claims some level of exclusivity. Islam claims to have exclusive spiritual answers. And they're all like that. And you could take all those religious systems and maybe add to it secular humanism or even paganism, and no matter what it may be, those who are involved in those religious systems view their system as a superior form of religious and spiritual thought. If they didn't think their system was superior... Why even have it? You see, all of them view their system as superior to others when it comes to spiritual thought. And if we're just going to be honest about it, um, no dedicated disciple of any religious system or even of secular humanism or paganism would ever encourage their own children to convert to something else because they believe there's a uniqueness something different about their system of religious thought. And so when you look at all of these religions, rather than all religions basically being the same, and rather than being different paths up the same mountain, in actuality, there are different mountains with different standards and different processes that we are to follow. Now, having said all of that for a moment, and I hope I didn't put you to sleep talking about religions in general, Here's something that's very important for us to understand. It is a logical impossibility for all of them to be right. It is a logical impossibility for all of them to be right. And that premise is clearly supported by a foundational law of logic called the law of non-contradiction. Here's what the law of non-contradiction says. It says, if two statements contradict one another, either one is true or both are false. They cannot both be true. Do you see how that works? The law of non-contradiction. Two statements contradict either one is true or both are false, but they cannot both be true. How many people here um, are are what we might call dog people? You like dogs. Let me see some hands, all right? How many people are cat people? Let me see. There's, there's, There's quite a number of cat people out there, but less than the dog people. When I grew up in our family, we started out as dog people. We had dogs, and then eventually, we actually became cat people. We also had cats. And uh, when we got married, my wife, Janet, had grown up in a family that had dogs. And so we decided before we were going to start our family and have kids that we would get a dog. And so we got our dog. We named the dog Alfarina, nicknamed Alfie. But you need to know that we were looking for something very specific when it came to getting our dog. And that is that we wanted to find a dog that was at least 50% poodle, because we did not want to have a dog that shed hair. Been there, done that. So we were going to get a dog that was at least 50% poodle, and that's what Alfarina was. Now, thinking about the law of non-contradiction, I'll give you two statements. Statement number one, all dogs shed hair. Statement number two, poodles don't shed hair. Those statements contradict one another. And they are either both wrong or one of them is right, but they cannot both be right. In this case, poodles don't shed hair is a true statement. All dogs shed hair is a wrong statement. Now, translating that, understanding the law of non-contradiction, let's look in the spiritual realm. Jesus says, I am the only way to God. Muhammad says, Jesus is not the only way. There's another way. All right, so now we've got two statements that contradict one another, and either Muhammad is right and Jesus is wrong, or Jesus is right and Muhammad is wrong, or they're both wrong, but they cannot both be right. Think about all these religious systems that we've been talking about this morning, And the law of non-contradiction, because they are different and they contradict one another, tells us that either one of them is right and the rest of them are wrong, or they're all wrong, but they cannot all be right. So what we're talking about are these common notions that are out there that tend to feed a negative reaction the idea that Christ is the only way. People trip over that statement because of these common notions. There's a third one I want to look at today. Not only that sincere belief determines truth and all religions are basically the same, another common notion is that narrowness is bad. See, the thinking is Christ is the only way. That's really narrow, and narrow is bad, therefore, it's not true. But narrowness and exclusivity is part of our everyday world. For example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I can say, you know what? That's really narrow. And narrow is bad. You know, I would like 2 plus 2 to equal 79. We have narrowness and exclusivity around us in the everyday world. And narrow is not automatically bad. You know, it's possible to be narrow and right, and it's possible to be narrow and wrong. If two plus two equals 79, that's narrow, but it's wrong. Many of you are aware that we have an opportunity to go and speak nationally at Family Life's Weekend to Remember, Marriage Getaways. And the normal thing is when we go to those marriage getaways to to speak, we normally will fly to that particular location. And I know most of us have had the opportunity to fly. Have you ever noticed that the airport tower has a very narrow view when it comes to landing an airplane? They actually will say to the person piloting the plane, there's an exact runway we want you to land on. That's pretty narrow. We want you to land on runway number two. And not only do we want you to land on runway number two, we have a very narrow view of how we want you to land on runway number two. We want you to land from the west, not from the east. And then they have this narrow view that we want you, when you land your airplane, we want you to lower your landing gear. So we want you to be, with your landing gear down, we want you to go to runway number two, and from the west, we want you to land the plane. That's a very narrow perspective to have. Can you imagine if I'm a pilot and I go, you know what? That's too narrow. Narrow is bad. What I would prefer to do is, I want to pick my own runway. I want to land on runway number three doesn't make any difference if there's a bunch of planes parked there. I'm going to land there. And then speaking about directions, I I don't even want to land on runway number three. I want to land crossways on runway number three. In fact, I don't even want to use my landing gear. What I want to do is I want to land on runway number three crossways without my landing gear, and I want to land with my nose up and my tail down. You know, sometimes narrow can be very good. You're so glad that your pilot follows the narrow view of the tower at the airport. Now, I say all that just to point out that narrowness is not automatically bad. It's not automatically deplorable. It just depends on the merits of the narrow statement. So what we've said is when people have a negative reaction to Christ being the only way, there are these three common notions that tend to feed that reaction. But let's look at Jesus' bold assertion. Let's zoom in on what he has to say here in John 14.6. Let's look at it again. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God the Father, but through me. You know, if you study religious systems, you'll find out that the spiritual leaders of these various religious systems are very different than Jesus. For example, a leader of a major religious system might say this, follow me and you will become enlightened. And Jesus, by contrast, says, I am the light. One of the leaders of a religious system might say, follow me and I'll show you the way to God and salvation. And Jesus, by contrast, says, I am the way. Another religious leader might say, follow me and I will show you how to find truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. Another major religious leader might say, follow me and I'll show you how to find life. And Jesus says, I am the the life. Now, let's just freeze frame right there. Why does he say that? You know, when I, when I went to uh, university, I was trained in journalism. And one of the key things of journalism is you ask questions. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but through me. Why does he say that? Why? Why? there's an answer to that. I want to ask you another question, and and, uh, I want complete honesty. Okay, are you ready here? How many of us here today have been perfect all of our life? We've never did or said anything wrong. Let me see, get those hands up real high. Well, we don't have any hands up, do we? Because we know we've all done something wrong, and we've all said something wrong. Now, we've all admitted that we've done wrong things and said wrong things. Here's a follow-up question. How does God grade us on the wrong that we have done? How does God grade us? Well, some people would say, well, you know, it's just about whether or not you were sincere. Really? I sincerely didn't intend to drive my car through the big window into the restaurant and crush 17 people with my car. But because I sincerely didn't intend to do that, no, 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 that doesn't work. How does God grade us based on the wrongs that we have done? Does he grade us, you know, on what we used to call the curve, you know, that's when there was a certain standard of grades, but sometimes, maybe because the whole class didn't do well, the teacher would change the standard and he would grade or she would grade on the curve. Is that the way God does it? You know, as long as you're mostly good, you're okay, even though you've done wrong and you've said wrong things. But you know, the big problem with that is where is the, where is the mostly line? You know, how, how do I know I'm on the right side of the mostly line? How does God grade us? Does he do it by way of comparison? You know, I'm graded by comparison. Does he compare me to Muammar Gaddafi, the twisted Libyan dictator? And I'm going to compare you to him, and, and as long as you kind of beat him out, you're fine. But but what if, you know, the, the comparison was, rather than Muammar Gaddafi, what if it was comparing me to Mother Teresa, someone who gave up everything in life materially and went and lived on the streets of Calcutta, India, helping the most desperate people in all of the planet? Now, if that's the comparison, suddenly I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. How does God grade us? You know that Jesus answers that question for us. He tells us what the standard is. He said it in the New Testament in the the book of Matthew, chapter 5 and verse 48. Here's the standard, men and women, for you and for me. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ouch. Ouch. He's talking about being perfect through and through. If you go back and you look at the context of that verse, he's talking about how we're to be perfect even in our thoughts, not just in what we say and what we do, but even in our thoughts and in the intent of our heart. The standard we're being held to is to display the righteousness of God. And what is so amazing is the Bible tells us that only one misstep blows perfection. In James 2.10, it says, whoever keeps the whole law, there were hundreds of them, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. Why? Because the standard is being perfect. And you know what that means? That means we've all missed the target. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And we have all been afflicted with a spiritual disease of sin. And the problem with the spiritual disease of sin is it's fatal without a cure. And the Bible teaches us that there's nothing I can do to pay the penalty for sin and what it means is that we all fall short, and there's no hope that we can make up the gap that exists between us and the standard. And this is why Jesus is unique and why Jesus can make the statements he makes in John 14, 6, because he was perfect. He was God who came down to this planet and took on Humanity. And as a perfect God, He died for our sins. He took the penalty that was due to us, and He had the standard of perfection that was needed. Turn with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament and chapter number five. If you're using a Bible from underneath the chair, it would be on page 122. Romans chapter 5. Jesus was unique. He was perfect, and he died for our sins. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still helpless, we couldn't do anything about it, we're never going to reach that standard. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know who fits into that group? Every one of us because we didn't meet the standard. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, while we missed the target, what an amazing statement. Christ died for us. Jesus is our only hope. Here's really what Jesus says to us. Either... Pay the penalty yourself or trust in me as your substitute. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son, it means to to count on what he's done and who he is and what he accomplished. Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus said, therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, in other words, the God who became a man, who climbed on a cross to die and pay for your penalty, unless you believe that I am he, you, this is straightforward truth, will die in your sins. You see, Jesus climbed on a cross as God himself to pay your debt. And it's your job and my job to accept that, to receive that, to believe in that. That's what faith is, just to count on something as being true. By the way, this idea that Christ is the only way, it was affirmed by the apostles as the church began in the book of Acts. It says there, there is salvation in no one else. Why? Why? Because there was no other person who, being God, took on humanity and climbed on a cross to pay the penalty. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Someone has calculated that there are 11 major religions in the world And 10 of the 11 major religions in the world spell salvation exactly the same way. 10 of the 11 major religions spell salvation this way, D-O. In other words, if you want to experience salvation, there's something that you must do. Now, they will define the do differently. Some will say you must do this. Some will say you must do that. But every one of them basically say the same thing. Salvation spelled do. You need to get busy. There are things that you need to do. Ten of the 11 major religions spell salvation that way. Only one is different, and that is biblical Christianity. And biblical Christianity spells salvation d O n e. Only biblical Christianity says there's nothing that you can do because you can't make yourself perfect, and that is the standard. Biblical Christianity doesn't say there's things that you need to do to be acceptable to God. It says that you, you need to count on the fact that it's been done, D-O-N-E. The work has already been accomplished because God became man who died and took your penalty. It is done. I have another question for you. If anyone could ever be good enough to be saved by his own good deeds, then why did God nail his beloved and innocent son on a cross? Christ's death for all men is senseless if all men are not in need of this substitutionary death. That's the whole idea. You know, here's a common objection you often hear when it comes to the idea of Christ being the only way. They will say something like this. How harsh and unloving to proclaim that there's one way. How harsh and unloving to go out there and try to proselytize other people into your way of thinking. I want to flip that around for a minute. How harsh and unloving to fail to share the only true solution to sin and death. That would be harsh and unloving. See, see, the aim of a follower of Christ, and remember, this didn't come from us as followers. This came from the mouth of Christ himself. But their aim as a follower is not to impose our solution on other people. The aim of a follower of Christ is to expose others to the ultimate solution, and then people have to make their own choice. Oprah. There couldn't possibly be only one way. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's he saying? I met God's standard for you. I paid the price for your failures. It is free to you, but it cost me dearly. What you need to do, this is what Jesus says, is you need to embrace it. You need to believe in it. You need to put your faith in it. You need to trust in it. You need to rest in it. And when we do, oh, we come to know the God of the universe. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you so much for the opportunity we had to tackle a question like this, and it's it's a question that's on the minds of many in our culture today. but these aren't these aren't our own thoughts these are the very thoughts of the Son of God himself. He is the one who stated very clearly, "I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody that includes Nobody can come to God the Father except through me. And Father, we would pray for any who might be, be hearing these thoughts, who's never yet just placed their faith, their trust, their reliance on the person of Christ and who he is and what he has done. I would pray that they would do so. I would pray that you would just make it clear to them that Christ is the only way. He is our only God. Hope. Our only hope is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why he climbed on it, because he wanted to give himself in our place so that we can know forgiveness, and we could know eternal life, and we could know God as our Father. We thank you for what you're going to do, and we thank you in Jesus' name.